continue to grow. Let's get our Bibles out and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, page 1312 on the Pew Bible in front of you. We're in part 6 of finding ourselves in the gospel, where we're looking at the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And we have a, a, just some amazing news before us this morning, and that is that we can hear God speak today. God can speak in this time, and you can hear, and that's amazing. That's an amazing reality. The God of the universe would talk to us. And so let's pray that he would meet us here and speak into our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your glorious nature, your wondrous grace that amazes us every day. That somehow a name that is above all names, that has no rival and no equal, would make himself knowable to fallen sinful people like us. And that you would do it through humility. Help us today to long in our hearts to desire to hear your voice. To just touch the hem of the garment of the love that you have for us, Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and that our hearts would be prepared for what you have to say, that all distraction would be banished from this place and that we'd be able to leave and be courageous to live out the things that we hear from you. And it would all be for your glory, your honor, and your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's remember the context of what we're talking about because it's very important to understand what's going on. That Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth and that this is a very, uh, it's very much a corrective letter. And that every book in the New Testament is somewhat corrective, but I don't think that there's uh, another book like 1 Corinthians that is as blatantly and um, almost totally corrective in nature. Paul has been gone from Corinth for about five years. He plants the church. He leads these people to faith in Christ. He goes on, and in the five years that he's been gone, the church in many ways has not uh, grown spiritually, although they've grown numerically. They haven't grown spiritually as they should, and in some ways they've even reverted backwards. And so when Paul finds this out, he, of course, is grieved deeply. He loves these people, so he writes this letter to correct what is wrong. And so you remember that uh, as we left the end of chapter 2, Paul was establishing the fact that there are two types of people. That every person on earth falls into one of two categories. It's either natural people or spiritual people. Nobody's in the middle. We're natural or we're spiritual. Natural people are lost. Spiritual people are saved. Natural people are unbelievers. Spiritual people are believers. Now, Paul made that abundantly clear. Now we're going to move into chapter 3 with that sort of momentum that he's established. And we see here in verse 1 what he's going to say. Understanding we're either unbelievers or believers, we're natural or spiritual. He says, I then, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, let's just stop here for a second because we gotta, we got to do some thinking. Get your listening guide out. 
In Christ, carnality stunts maturity. We have a situation here where people who clearly are spiritual people, they're in Christ. Now, we know this because from the very first verse of this letter, Paul's talked to a group of people in a church who are called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be saints in Christ. He's talked about how they've been filled with the Spirit of God. And even here in verse 1 of chapter 3, he calls them brothers. He's acknowledging that not everyone in the church at Corinth is saved, but most of them are. Just like not everyone in this church is saved, but hopefully most of us are. And he's acknowledging the fact that he's speaking to them as brothers, as part of his spiritual family. And he says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people because you are carnal. You're carnal. Now, Paul's the one who introduced them to Christ. He was the one who spent a year and a half there teaching them about the things of Christ. And so he knows what they originally knew, and he knows where they should have progressed since the time that he was last there. And he's going to use this imagery, this, this metaphor of being babies and, and milk versus solid food. You see in, first, in verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able. You see, he's saying here that things should have changed. Things should have progressed, but they haven't. This imagery of milk versus solid food, most Bible scholars believe that this is uh, taken from the culture of Corinth. That Corinth would uh, prize two things mainly, athletic prowess and power and public speaking and wisdom. And so the famous speakers in Corinth, people would actually pay to come and hear them speak. And so when people listened to them speak, there was always this competition as to who was the best speaker and who was the most, you know, who had the greatest insight and wisdom. And so when someone listened to somebody speak and they were really great, they would say, oh, that was solid food. And so Paul is pulling from their language, their cultural uh, knowledge, and he's using this to make his spiritual point so that they would get the idea of what it is he's trying to say. Now, we recognize that you don't stay a baby. See, at my house right now, there's diapers and bottles and all sorts of things that haven't been there in a long time. But they're there. But they won't stay there because there's a progression of growth that, you know, I mean, if, if you're in middle school and you're drinking out of a sippy cup, we have a problem. If you're a 12-year-old and you're wearing diapers, there's a problem. You see, so we recognize that there is an understood progression of growth physically, and it's the same way spiritually. Now, Paul is going to point out the evidence of their carnality. Now, I'm going to explain all this in a minute, but let's make sure that we understand what the Bible's telling us here. How do we know that they're behaving carnally? He's not just going to let them guess. He's going to tell us. Look at verse 3. For you're still carnal, and here's how we know. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men or natural men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So remember back in chapter 1, he talked about how competition was coming into the church, where they were competing over who, what teachers they liked, and so on and so forth. They were just mimicking what was going on in the culture. Now, I want, to, I want you to understand what's happening here. Is everything in the church at Corinth wrong? Is is every way that these people are behaving carnal? And the answer is no. Look at exactly what the Bible says in chapter 3. I mean, verse 3. For you are still carnal. For where, where are you carnal? 
Not everywhere, but he points out for where there are these things. There are evidences of areas of your life that are carnal. Now, that's important for us to understand. And then they, he goes on to bring back that apparently what's the most contentious of the groups as far as aligning themselves with teachers are the people who are saying, I'm with Paul, and those who are saying, I'm with Apollos. And what's crazy about all this is they're relating to their, their leaders in such a way that has absolutely nothing to do with anything that their leaders have done. It's just absurd. But it's pointing out the fact that there's a problem. Now, this brings up a very important point that we all have to understand. So if there's only two groups of people, natural and spiritual, saved and unsaved, right? then clearly what Paul is telling us is that there are different types of people in the category of being spiritual. Let me explain this to you. Paul is saved, right? I mean, this is just one plus one equals two, but we got to make sure or we're going to be confused. Paul is saved, so he's spiritual, the Corinthians that he's talking to, most of them are saved, so they're spiritual. Now, are, so they're both spiritual. Now, are Paul and the people he's talking to the same? No. One's mature and the others are immature. One's mature and one group is carnal. So there's differences within the group of Christians, the group of spiritual people. Now, remember I said from the very beginning, all these, the thing about 1 Corinthians is, is that what, what I taught you about four weeks ago is all leading to today. And what I'm teaching you about today is, I mean, these are pieces that are all fitting together very obviously. It's always like that, but it's not always as obvious as it is in Corinthians. So from the beginning, I've been talking about identity, remember? And for the last several weeks, I've been telling you that in Christ, if you don't know who you are, you're going to act like who you were. You were. But if you do know who you are, we ended last week by saying you will act like whose you are. Remember that? Okay? Now, this is exactly what I'm talking about. We have people who are acting carnal. They're reverting back to act like who they were. Now, we've got to make sure that we don't just rush past this because this text and the concept that I'm talking about has caused a lot of people a lot of confusion, but even more so has given... Uh, way to a lot of errant teaching and a lot of false teachers to make a lot of messes of people's lives getting wrapped up in things that are wrong. So let's go through a few of these. So first of all, what if someone says, well, I was saved and then I walked away from the faith and I lost my salvation? Because remember, there's this terminology out there called carnal Christianity, which I reject. You're a Christian or you're not. You can be a Christian who behaves carnally, but you're not a carnal Christian. You're spiritual or you're natural. You're saved or you're unsaved. So what if somebody says, well, I walked away from the faith and I lost my salvation. Well, according to Scripture, that's impossible. Now, first of all, you can't say, I lost my salvation because salvation is not yours to lose. The Bible says salvation, Revelation chapter 7, is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to God. You can't lose something that's not yours. You don't own it. You don't have it. See, you don't possess Jesus. Jesus possesses you. 
So the question of, well, I lost my salvation, what you're, what, if you're going to say it correctly, if you're going to say something untrue correctly, the way you would say it is, is that not can I lose my salvation, but can Jesus lose me? So somebody would say, well, I got saved and I walked away from the faith and Jesus lost me. So the question is, can Jesus lose somebody? And the Bible says in John chapter 10, Jesus says, no. I give eternal life and those I give it to will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. I think that's pretty definitive. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus never loses anyone. So whomever Jesus saves, Jesus keeps. So we can't lose salvation because salvation is not dependent upon us. Furthermore, you can't have eternal life at some moment in time and then later on it ceased to be eternal. See, either it was never eternal or it is always eternal. It cannot shift from one to the other. That's impossible. Now, I know that in a place like this, you're thinking, well, duh. But you'd be surprised at how many people and how many churches don't understand this and are confused by this. You see, when it comes to salvation, it's very simple. If you got it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. If you've got it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. Now, how do we know this? Well, look at what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they were not of us. You got that? Which is just another way of saying, if you got it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you didn't have it. Now, what about somebody who comes along and says, well, I received Jesus as Savior, but then later on, he became my Lord. Now, this is something that you hear, and I'll be honest with you, uh, a lot of times when you hear this, I understand that people may not mean what they're saying, but we have to be careful because what we say can mislead people. So let's make sure that we understand the problem with, I received Jesus as Savior, but Later on, he became my Lord. That is impossible. Jesus did not die on the cross and rise from the dead so that you and I could set the terms of salvation. Do you understand that? It is absurd to think that we would dictate the way this thing would go. He didn't say, well, look, it's fine. You go ahead and receive me as Savior, and then at some later time, when you're ready... I'll become Lord. That's not the way that works. The, what the Bible teaches is simply this. Jesus comes as Lord and Savior, or he does not come at all. It's that way and only that way. You cannot separate Lord and Savior because those two things are one thing expressed in two different ways. It's the same thing. Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot separate those things. You can see it clear as a bell. We just finished studying 2 Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. That right off the bat, Peter introduces God as Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It is not one or the other. It is both. You know, it, see, this idea that somewhere down the line we'll get serious or, 
will, whatever it is, that he'll be Lord. Jesus, think this through. Jesus died to save us from the disaster of us being Lord of our lives in order to forgive us of our sin. So if he, if he dies to save us from the disaster of us being Lord of our lives and forgives our sin and then turns the reins of our life back over to us, we're right back in the same situation we started in. It is impossible and unbiblical and it doesn't even make any sense. Understand, Jesus saved us from our old way of life and is Lord over our new way of life. And that's the only way that works. Amen? All right, what about this one? Well, I've received Jesus as Lord and Savior, but there's been no transformation in my life. I mean, I have this conversation all the time. When somebody clearly is living as an unbeliever and they, they say, well, well, no, Pastor, I'm saved. When I was a teenager, I went to youth camp. Or when I was a kid, I was at BBS. Or back in the day, I did this or I did that. And I signed a card or I got dunked or I made a decision or whatever the case may be. Really? So let me ask you a question. Do you suppose that God would slaughter his son and defeat death all so he could leave you the same way he found you? Is there any way that that could be possible? And yet how prevalent and how deep this deceit runs. Think about simple texts like Philippians 1. He who has begun a good work, he began something in you at salvation. There was a change. The God of the universe, when he begins something in you, it is evidenced. There's a change. There is a clear, undeniable moment where your life changes. But, look at what Paul's saying here. It is possible, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and many other places in Scripture, but Specifically here, it is possible for Jesus to come into your life and forgive your sin and be seated on the throne of your life as Lord. And you be immature. And you be living in areas of your life in carnality. And that's the problem that this text is addressing. You see, think of it this way. We have free will, correct? Yes, we do. It's undeniable. God will not force himself upon anyone. Yes. Because, see, those two things, it can't coexist without them both being true. So we have free will. God won't force himself on anyone. So when we say things like, I accepted Christ, or I invited Christ into my life, it's not technically wrong. And so if you say that, I won't correct you. And if I say that, you shouldn't correct me because it's not technically wrong. The problem with it is, is that it is misleading. 
Because that's not what happened. And what, what that portrays is not what happened. Let me, let me explain this to you. So you have free will, and I have free will, and God doesn't force himself on anyone. So what happened? According to the Bible, here's what happened. God began working in your life. God began pursuing you. He began using people, circumstances, situations in your life to get your attention, to make himself known to you. And as time went on, he was steadily turning up the heat and doing it more and more and more and more and more obvious ways, working and getting your attention. And what happened was, is that you and me, because we were natural men and women, you know what we did? We ran from that. Because first of all, if we're honest, it's scary. And second of all, we don't want to give up lordship of our life. Our flesh wants to cling to that. And so God begins to work in our life. He begins to reveal himself to us. And we try to run away. And, the, and, and here's what happens. We're not all the same. Some of you are way more hard-headed than the other ones. Now, I could point out the differences in the room, but I'm not going to do that. But listen. Sometimes you have people who very early on as God begins to pursue them, they have the temperament and the personality to where they, they're more open to yield. They still run. Everyone runs. But then there's Jonah's in the room. Like we got to get swallowed by a fish before we relent. And God won't give up. He won't stop. So this is what happened. When you got saved and I got saved, you know what happened? I didn't invite God into my life. I didn't accept God as Savior. I surrendered to the God who's been pursuing me. That's what happened. I stopped running. I got sick of the belly of the fish. I got tired of Waking up day after day. So see what happens is when we get saved, the war for our soul has been won. But the battle still rages in the flesh in these other areas of our life. We're fully saved. We're fully equipped but we're far from fully developed at salvation. So we're babes, and so we first grow on milk, and then we grow from that, and we grow from that. Now, remember a few weeks ago I told you the story about the duck? Remember the duck? You remember Daffy? See, I told you that to set you up for today because I wanted you to have been already exposed to this reality. You see, if you can be a duck, and if you're a duck, all you can ever be is a duck, and you can never be anything but a duck, right? But if you live in a house with people in their living room, you can act like something you're not. You're still a duck, but you start acting like a person. I mean, think about it. A duck that won't go outside in the rain. The stupid thing is born with a raincoat built in. Because people don't. So you know what? When you're saved, you're a Christian. You can only be a Christian, and you can forever only be a Christian, but you can act like an unbeliever. And you know what makes, what made Daffy act like a person? Was living around things that he wasn't. Do you know what makes a Christian act like something they're not? Being influenced 
living around things that they're not. That's why you have to be so careful about the things that influence you. The things that you allow into your life because they have great impact on you. And they can cause you to start behaving in ways that aren't of you. Now, these believers were acting like unbelievers. Just like we do. And it doesn't mean, listen, oftentimes when we're having a conversation like this, I have to be very careful because I want you to understand that if there's areas of your life that even now already the Spirit of God is convicting you about because you know they're not pleasing to Him, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to get rebaptized. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not saved. What it means is that you're acting like a baby, you're behaving like an infant, and you need to grow up. That's what it means. Remember, carnality stunts maturity. And so wherever we allow our lives to be carnal, we're not going to grow. See, we oftentimes hear baptism testimonies of people who made a profession early on in their life. Maybe they, you know, whatever happened. Then they got baptized or they did this or they did whatever. But God, in His infinite grace, didn't quit pursuing them. But He continued. And then they came to a place in their life where there was real transformation. There wasn't just this external decision but there was internal transformation and so now they're sharing their testimony with us about how different things are and about how God's changed them and listen we need to celebrate that we need to be so grateful that is the grace of God that he just keeps pursuing and keeps pursuing because he knows we may not always know. Certainly the people around you, well, I can't know another man or woman's heart. But God knows. And if you're not saved, He won't stop pursuing you. He'll keep going and keep pressing in and keep pushing. And so we constantly hear stories of people who maybe thought they were saved or whatever the case may be. But then when it happened, they knew this was different than that. You see, the Bible says that God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Remember we talked about that three weeks ago? That was for today. Constantly reassuring us that we're His children. It's not one time at, at salvation that happens, but constantly because we have a tendency to drift. And you know what? We never drift towards God. We only grow towards God and drift away from God. Moving towards God comes with intentionality. Drifting away from God comes with carnality. So, <clears throat> sometimes people get confused and they're not sure. Now, if there has been if there's been an identifiable change in your life, if there's a point in your life that you can look back upon and you know clearly that you're, something changed, your attitudes and, and the, the way you think about things changed, well, good. That's probably evidence of salvation. But here's the thing. I don't think you need me actually to explain all this to you. Because I think God has a way of making His point, doesn't He? So I want you to consider some things. First of all, as I'm talking about all of this, 
If you're in here or you're listening to this and you, your response to this is, oh, I feel so much better that I can, you know, I can be saved and I can still have all these areas of my life as a disaster. And that's it. You probably have a problem. Now, if your response is, I feel relieved to know that I can be saved and still have things in my life that are unpleasing to God, and you feel convicted about those things, well, then that's what the Spirit of God does to let you know that He's in you. That you're convicted to address those areas, not convicted to address your spiritual state. Another thing is, is just God's a great communicator, and a lot of times He communicates to us through, look, I didn't get saved till I was 25, so I know all about this. And when you don't grow up in a Christian home, and church comes at you like a, you know, church didn't come at me like a soft, smooth breeze. It came at me like a tornado. So you live all these things out. So, for example, when, when you come to church, I can remember in the beginning as God was working in my life and I started, I, I was coming to church and I was reading the Bible and I was starting to, you know, I was starting to surrender. And so when the pastor would be up there teaching the Bible, I loved that. But I hated the invitation. I hated it. My palms got sweaty. I wanted to get out. You know, COVID's changed a few things, but one thing never changes. When it comes to the invitation, I see you hit the door. I see you. You want out. I know that feeling. I remember that feeling. That's the God of the universe communicating to you. Isn't it amazing that you can, nobody can read your mind. No one knows. And yet you're standing there so stressed out and tensed up like there's, a, like there's a big light just shining right on you, exposing you to everyone around you, and yet there's not. That's God speaking to you. When you come to church and you find out that it's a baptism service, what's your response to that? You know what I've noticed? I've noticed because typically we baptize on the last Sunday of every month, I've noticed that there are people that I'm concerned about their spiritual state. They don't come on Baptism Sunday or every time we have baptism, they come in late, which is why I moved it to after the music. Because I love you. When you come in and you find out it's Baptism Sunday, are you excited about that? Or do you feel this sense of, why? Because you need to get baptized, that's why. And why don't you surrender? I don't know. But you need to because God's speaking to you. So, Paul's telling this group of believers, hey, you're acting like something you shouldn't be. You're, you're acting like infants, and that's a great danger to you. And it's a grief to the heart of God. Now, 
what's, the, what's at the source of all of this? Well, he makes it clear that carnality is rooted in vanity. In vanity. You see, he says, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, in verse 3, Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? You see what they're doing is they're behaving selfishly. They're competing with each other over status. They're divided over ridiculous things. They're doing exactly what we do in the world. That's what we do. And do you know what? Wherever in life, in the church, in life, it's a universal principle. Wherever in life there's immaturity, you can bet your bottom dollar there's always going to be disunity. Always. Always. It never fails. And why is that? Well, let's just think about this for a second. What is immaturity? What does it mean to be immature? You see, you can't just say that someone's immature without there being some understood progression that exists. Right? In other words, just to make a silly point so that you understand what I'm saying. Like if I was sitting at home watching a documentary about whales on the Discovery Channel. And they were following this one whale. You know, and it always cracks me up by the, you know, I mean, the stupid things that they, you know what I'm saying? Like, I love science, but good gracious. And they go, oh, and look at the, look at the beautiful whale. Who's the smartest humans. I'm like, hold up a second. No, it isn't. It is not as smart as humans. Show me a city that a whale built. Just show me one. The guy on the boat with the giant gun on the front of it, with the huge harpoon that's obviously on it, and the whale swimming uh, like, hello? No. If it's as smart as Tony, Tony's going the other direction. And then when the boat turns around, I'm going to go back this way until that boat runs out of gas. Don't tell me the whale's as smart as a human, because it's not. Okay, back to the sermon. And they go, look at this whale. Now, this is an adult whale, but it's immature. Huh? How do you know that? I mean, you don't know that. I don't know. We don't know that. But now a person, oh, we got that because we understand you see, you got to have some understanding. So immaturity, it, what it means to be immature is to be underdeveloped. It means you're not where you ought to be, right? So to be spiritually immature is to be stagnant, not growing, not moving in some areas of your life, or to be regressing. And so where we're... If we're not moving, then we're, we're, we're staying where we are. So we're, we're staying culturally influenced by something or we're becoming even more influenced. See, if you, if you don't have a handle on the things that are influencing your life, you're moving in the wrong direction because you're becoming more and more carnal. And when we don't have Christ in our life, just, just remember back to before you got saved. What were we doing, all of us? We were all looking for ways to make ourselves look better. All of us. And why? Because we all have this, this embedded need to be accepted. You've never met a person who didn't want to be accepted. You are a person who wants to be accepted. And how do you how do you get accepted? 
Do you know how you get acceptance? You conform yourself to what the culture around you deems acceptable. See, acceptance, what you do to be accepted is predicated on what the people around you consider acceptable. And so, it's different. See, some of you before Christ, you were ate up with your job. And your whole life, your identity was wrapped up in your job and your success and, and how much, you know, the promotions you could get or the prestige or the power your job brought. But it can be ridiculous things. Some people are wrapped up in their house. The house they live in makes them feel acceptable and accepted. Look, it gets silly. Things like the emblem on our car or the logo on our clothes. The lengths we go to to be accepted. To be acceptable. And when we bring that into the church, because trust me, it's there. It's part of your life and it's part of my life and nobody can deny it. When that comes into the church, that sort of behaving, people start jockeying for position or power or prestige or... Do you know how you see this in most churches? Most churches in the United States of America exhibit this in one simple, blaringly obvious way. They focus on being comfortable. You see, that's what the world does. You know, what, you know what I did when I was lost? What I wanted to do. What made me feel good and especially what made me comfortable. And what I didn't do was anything that made me uncomfortable. And when a church loses its bearings, the first place it's most obvious is they become fixated on their comfort. So last night, I uh, got to go to a Christian wedding, and man, what's better than watching two young people that love Jesus with all their heart get married? I mean, it's amazing. I love it. It's fantastic. And plus, I got to see Johnny Hurts in the tux. Now, I know you don't know who I'm talking about because he hides up there in that sound booth and runs these slides all the time, but... When I was sitting there, it was in another church that Brian was doing the wedding. And I was sitting there and I thought, man, these seats are the bomb. You know, they got these like these, you know, seats like in the movie theater kind of thing, you know. And I was like, boy. And I started looking around going, we need seats like this. And then I thought, the heck we do. <laughs> no, we're going to keep sitting on them boards you're sitting on is what we're going to do. Because see, if you know me, if you, you ask anyone on staff here, any of the elders, they'll tell you, I am a fanatic about every dollar we spend. I hate, I hate fixing things. I hate spending money on things. I like spending money on people. I hate spending money on things. And part of it is you sometimes you just have to. But listen, if it was up to me, We'd be in a big old warehouse with folding chairs and a concrete floor. I'm serious. So just let me tell you something. We're, we're about to build a, a fellowship building. Don't be expecting nothing fancy. 
It is 100% for ministry, not comfort. Because I don't ever want to be a church. Listen, there's so many things going on in churches today that, that grieve the heart of God. we got to use our, our time and our energy and our talent and our resources on the mission of God, not making ourselves comfortable. It's ridiculous. So are there areas of your life where you're immature? What are they? Let me tell you a few more things before we close. See, Paul, Paul's writing this letter to people that he saw from the very beginning. And there's one thing that I know for sure that a lot of times people sort of miss, and that is age doesn't always equal maturity. And you need to know that. It should, but it doesn't. And I learned a long time ago that there's a lot of people that have been in church for 50 years and they're immature. And there's times that I have a conversation with a teenager and they blow my mind at the things that they say and the insight that they have. So it's not a young thing or an old thing, no. And if there's one piece of advice that I can give you, it's this, when it comes to carnality and immaturity. For 25 years, I've been watching this battle rage in people's lives. And here's the central lesson that I've learned. People that don't grow, the reason they're carnal is because they focus on the areas of their life where they're mature and they ignore the areas of their life where they're immature. Without a doubt, this is what happens. You hear a sermon like this, you know there are areas of your life you're immature. You know there are carnal places in your life that are unpleasing to God. And you don't address them because you go, well, I know that's there, but these other things I do well. And I want to remind you, everything in Corinth was not carnal. The people that Paul's writing to, they were in church every Sunday. They were faithful. They were zealous. They were there. They were participating. And they were a disaster. Do not make the horrific mistake of thinking that because this area of my life is pretty good, I can ignore this. If you think for one second the Spirit of God is going to allow that, you are crazy. Get a piece of paper out and a pen and make a list of the areas in your life where you're immature and share it with your spouse or somebody close to you. Show them. Say, these are the areas where I'm carnal and I need to work on. Address them specifically so they know. So how do we avoid carnality? You think Paul's just going to leave us here in this ditch and not help us out? No, he's going to show us. And he's going to tell us this. We've got to remember that God's the hero of the story. You see, this vanity is about where carnality comes from is us making things about us. And so the solution to all of this is to know that God's the hero. You see, look at verse 5. 
They're hung up in all these things, envy, strife, who they follow. And then he says, well, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? We're ministers. That word minister just means servant. It's table waiters. We're table waiters through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. See, I did some things. Apollos did some things. We were part of the process. But who gave the increase? God gave the increase. God's the hero. God's the one that did it. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters. But God is the one who gives the increase. And then he's going to drive it home with these points. He's going to use this two illustrations. He says, well, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now, I'm going to go in depth about all that next week. But for, just suffice it to say, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. We'll, we're, we're workers in the field. But listen, we, can't, we don't make the plants grow. God does that. We can dig. We can, we can fertilize. But we can't make anything grow. And then look at the end of verse 9. Then he says, and you're also God's building. And then verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. He's like, I was a, was a skilled master builder in the process. And I laid a foundation. And other people came along behind. But notice what he says now. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Why? Because Paul's going to come get you? No. Because God is the architect. See, he's just a builder. We're just builders. We're just, we're just farmers. We can't make anything grow. God does that. We're builders, but we didn't design the building. Listen, whenever you build something, do you know what you do? You follow the plans. You, you can't just come, you just can't come in the kingdom of God, and this is what Paul's saying. You can't just start building any which way you want to. Oh, no. You build according to the plans. Because if you just build any which way you want to, guess what happens? Carnality comes in. Immaturity, you'll stop growing because it'll be vanity, because you'll be doing things the way you want to do it. Which is why last week I told you, a painless church is a pointless church. The day you come in here and I tell you everything you want to hear is the day you know I became a heretic. Amen. The Bible never says what I want it to say. Never. It says what God wants to say. And you know what I have to do? Submit to that. Because he's the, he's the architect. It's his plans. See, he's the hero. He enables our righteousness. He pardons our unrighteousness. He provides for our weakness. He's the one that does it all. He's the hero of the story. We're not the hero. You, you want to see some heroic things? Well, you're in the right place because they're all over this place. I get to see it all the time. If you were in community group this morning, I can promise you, you were in a room with some heroic people who have done some amazing things in the kingdom of God acknowledging that it's all in God's strength and all by His grace and all for His glory because He is the hero. Here's what I mean. Do you, you, know, you know what this looks like? It's, it's more often than not, whatever it is that you used to make yourself elevated or acceptable before Christ. After you come to Christ, you use that same thing for the glory of Christ. And it is the most beautiful thing to watch. 
See, in this church, you'll see people who spent all of their adult life building their career, their portfolio, and their financial wealth. And then they get saved, and they use the platform that God gave them to give other people a second chance, to be a blessing to people who are less fortunate. It's the most beautiful thing. You see it all over this community. You see people who grew up always battling for acceptance because they had a very harsh and unnatural childhood. And then they come to Christ and they open their home and take in children that were like them and walk that painful journey again and again and again with them. You see, whatever whatever you did before Christ to make yourself acceptable, you know what you did? The same thing I did. I used the gifts and talents that I had to try to make myself as good-looking as I could be. And so did you. And then when we come to faith in Christ, it's those very things that we spent our life working on, that God redeems those things and even increases the capacity of those things. We call them spiritual gifts. And then we use them not to prop ourselves up, but to bring glory to God. It's all over this place. You see, what I'm so thankful for this morning is Primarily two things in light of this text. Number one, this is a place of tremendous unity. Which means we don't have a huge immaturity problem. And isn't that a blessing? And the other thing is that because we get to see this played out before our very eyes. Over and over and over. You see... If we could be the hero, we wouldn't need a savior. He's the hero of the story. So when he invites us to be workers in his field or builders on his building, what? Think about this. You have to... Every person, every moment of their life... Has a Lord. It's either you or it's God. But you got to serve something. And you have to do something. See, before Christ, you did, you served someone and you did something. And the beautiful thing is, we get to serve God and do things in God's kingdom. And what we're going to find out next week is the things we get to do. We get to, all of us are invited into this kingdom to work and to build and do eternal things that will last forever. How amazing is that? Considering the fact that we're broken and we're still not fully complete and we still have areas of our life that need work and yet God still works with us. The idea that God would use you and me is amazing. He had other options. But he chose this way. So this morning, if you come to the realization that you're not saved. Well, that's the best news that ever could have happened to you because the grace of God is still pursuing you. He wants you to know how much He loves you and His door is wide open for you. And that's the greatest thing in the world. Or if you need to get baptized, what a blessing. 
Why, why? I always think back and go, why did I hate the invitation so much? It should be the greatest part. of. I should have been back there sweating, gripping onto the pew and just going, is, can you believe this is happening? But instead, I'm trying everything in me to pretend it wasn't. Where are you immature? Make a list. Address it. God loves you. He's not going to leave you like you are. He loves you too much for that. And by the way, He's got way too much invested. Let's stand and bow our heads.